0: Session
1: with Dr. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadid Holakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in: 310-441 zero five five five. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call on with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number is three one zero four four one zero five five five. Before I begin, I wanted to announce my next seminar here in Los Angeles. It will be next Sunday, not this coming Sunday, Sunday June twenty fourth from three to six p.m. at the Olympic Collection, and the topic is success tickets are available at the door for $40. That's next Sunday, June 24th from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Olympic Collection. So I'm going to be talking about success or how I define success and how I think we often think about what it means to be successful and to live a successful life in the wrong ways. And that's why when people even achieve what they think means to what it means to be successful, they're not happy. Um, And so my focus will be on defining success and then trying to describe how you can find your own successful life to live and lead that life for yourself. So hope to see you there next Sunday, June 24th from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Olympic Collection. Uh, Before I talk about the book for uh, this past week or do the summary, I wanted to announce the book for this week. It's actually not a psychology book per se, but More scientific and about astrophysics. It's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, I'd heard about this book and wanted to read it, but uh, again, it's not exactly psychology related, but I think it'll be an interesting reading and looking forward to sharing it with you next week. So it's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay, the book for this past week that i'll talk about tonight is the science of couples and family therapy by john gottman and julie schwartz gottman the science of couples and family therapy therapy behind the scenes at the love lab Um, and as you might know the gottmans have done years and decades of research on relationships and marriages what makes them work what makes them not work what makes people masters of conflict, and what makes them disasters in conflict. And uh, one of their books, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, is one that I refer to a lot, and I think it's a great book for couples to read together. And so this is a new book that they've released this year, looking at couples and family therapy and looking at some of the science and what it's telling us. Um, And they get into a lot of different things, and even... Their approaches, some of them I was surprised because they talk about game theory, uh, even math that is kind of like calculus. Of course, you don't have to do calculus to understand the concepts, but showing how they've come up with some of their theory. So that was quite interesting. Although uh, most of the discussion, when it says the science of couples and family therapy, was on therapy that they had come up with or people that they had somehow worked with. At least that was my. Um, impression of what I saw. So a lot of it was more focused on that. I thought it might be more comprehensive looking at different types of uh, couples and family therapy, but it was primarily focused on what they've come up with, but it was still very interesting to see that. And um, it was a good read to understand some of these concepts a little bit more deeply and what the science is telling us about how to do couples therapy and family therapy and what could possibly work and not work. So there's a lot of interesting things in the book that they covered. Um, For example, even just looking at therapy, and they mentioned that usually when we think about going to therapy, people think it's to fix our problems. And I always mention that even when it comes to individual therapy, I don't think about fixing problems per se. I think more about self-awareness as the goal and the key, that it's not just about fixing problems or getting rid of pathology. Uh, And what they talk about is that for a therapy to be effective when it comes to couples, it needs to change both conflict, the way they deal with conflict and their problems and their issues, but also the friendship and intimacy of the relationship, how close they are. And John Gottman's research on couples has actually found that what really makes a marriage successful, what makes a marriage last is the quality of the friendship between the partners. Uh, It's not something passionate or magical that has to be there, although that's necessary, but really is the foundation and the strength is the quality of that friendship. So they mentioned that you shouldn't just be focusing in therapy on resolving conflicts, but also on strengthening the friendship and intimacy of the relationship. Also because those are two parts that are very important when it comes to things like trust and commitment, which they all talk about a lot in the book, that you need to have also to have a strong and healthy relationship. They also mention how um, negative affect, negative feelings, are much more powerful than positive affect and maybe you've experienced that yourself if someone's in a good mood it has an effect on you but if someone is in a bad mood or someone gets angry with you that can have a much larger effect on how you're doing and so they've noticed this actually to the fact that in order to be in a happy marriage what they have found that you need to have a ratio of five positive to one negative thing or expressions in your relationship so for one Every one negative thing that you express to your partner, whether it's a feeling or a response or reaction, you need to have five positive ones in order to keep things in a positive homeostasis and a positive balance. And I thought that was interesting. I've seen that in his other work that he's done, but it was interesting to read that again and see how important that is. And this is why one negative thing someone says to you and a partner says that to you might ruin your day or ruin your night, but one compliment might not be enough to counteract that. And so that ratio of 5 to 1 does seem to make sense. And you know, it's interesting, in unhappy couples, they found that people tend to miss what their partner is even doing for them. And this is what's unfortunate about when we start to get down a bad path. It's not just that people aren't being as nice to each other in their relationships, they're also missing What's being done for them. And in one study, they found that unhappy couples don't see 50% of the positive things that their partner is doing that an objective observer watching the couple might see. So the husband might do something nice for the wife, a very small gesture, let's say, but the wife completely misses it. But someone watching them actually recognizes that. And I thought that was interesting to see how much we can be biased. And this is why when someone comes into therapy and they say, my husband does nothing for me or my wife does nothing for me. We know there's a few things going on, but one of them is also this, that they're missing some of the positive or nice things that their partner is doing. And this is why we know that appreciation and showing gratitude to your partner is so important. And not only is it just important to to show that gratitude, but before that, you have to be looking for it. And you have to pay attention to those things. And they also mention that in the book, if you're looking for those positive things and paying attention and commenting and reinforcing those positive things, that goes a long way. But in unhappy couples, we see that they're focusing on the negative and oftentimes neglecting, or in this case, we're saying even missing and not seeing the positive things that their partner is doing for them. There was a concept that they talked about in the book that to me, I had never heard it said in this way, but I've seen as when it comes to parenting and relationships, and that was the carrying capacity for a partner's negative affect, the carrying capacity, which maybe just hearing it, you might get a sense of what that is, but basically it's how much a partner can tolerate their husband or wife's negative emotion which is really critical and very important in relationships. Um, I talk about how I think this stems from the fact that most of us are uncomfortable with our own negative feelings, things like sadness or anger, and so we can't tolerate them in other people as well. And we might say, oh, it's stupid to be sad or there's no reason to be angry or sadness is a waste of feelings or a waste of our emotions and it's better to be in a good mood than a bad mood. And if you have that type of mindset with your own feelings, you're also likely going to have that same mindset with your partners. Now it's not always the case they showed some instances where someone was okay with their own sadness but couldn't tolerate their partner's sadness. But I think this is a really interesting and important component um, to keep in mind, the carrying capacity for a partner's negative affect. Something to ask yourself if you're in a relationship, how you do on that measure. Are you good at being able to tolerate your partner's negative feelings um, and also about your partner. How are they at handling that? Because one thing that's very important in partnerships and in a relationship that they touch upon in the book is that you take the other person into account, that you're thinking about their feelings and wanting to help them and being there for them. I thought that was really interesting that this term, the carrying capacity is so important. Another thing they talked about in this book that I've mentioned before when it comes to emotions is that they said understanding must precede action when it comes to feelings and emotions. And I thought that was a really good point. Whether you're dealing with your significant other or children, oftentimes someone says this is going on and I'm so upset and the person starts immediately giving solutions. We know that men tend to go to this place. Uh, solution finding a place first more often than women but both people um, men and women can can do this but they said it's important to have understanding before action before solutions empathize with your partner let them know I can see how that hurt you I can understand how that made you feel or made you upset it makes sense that you are upset and I thought that was that was really interesting um, that this idea of understanding, And that's really where the connection is made between you and your partner. There can be time for problem solving and solutions, but always you want to go to the emotion and empathizing first. And this is especially true when it comes to your kids. So your kid comes home and says they got teased by some kids at school rather than quickly going to, well, just ignore them or switch your class or do this or who cares what people say. First, you want to empathize with them. Gosh, that must have really hurt. Maybe I, maybe you felt embarrassed or you can even share your own experience. You know, God, I remember that happened to me before and I felt really sad. So I can imagine, and understand that you're feeling sad right now. An exploration of what they can do and how they can cope with it better can come afterwards. But make sure you empathize first with the child. So they come up with, and I'm not going to get into all of the theory that they develop as far as marriages and how they work. And then they also talk about how... Uh, their theory includes the inclusion of children and bringing about the baby, which can be a huge stressor. And many couples, or I think two-thirds of couples, saw a decline in their marital satisfaction the first three years after child, the first child was born. But 33% still were able to maintain um, a happy marital satisfaction level or keep it at the same level. And they get into some of the things that you can do to help create that. But they also talk about having arguments in front of your children and how hurtful that can be. I think oftentimes people think it's not that big of a deal for children to see some arguments, but they said that, no, this actually is a big problem. And before adolescence, they recommend, and this is from the work of um, another psychologist, but they recommended that parents generally try to have arguments out of children's earshot, meaning that make sure they can't hear it. You might think, well, they don't understand, they don't know what's going on, but you don't want to have them hearing um, the argument and what's happening. And if you don't think your arguments are affecting your child or that your marriage even is affecting your child, I was really amazed by this um, study, which found that uh, four-year-old kids with unhappily married parents were secreting more stress hormone in their urine than kids whose parents were happily married. So your kids could have more stress hormone in their bodies if you are having an unhappily, unhappy marriage so just another reason why parents who think well i'm just a good mom or dad it doesn't matter what's going on in the marriage we see that that absolutely is not the case that if you don't have a happy marriage your children are going to be experiencing more stress in their body and that's going to affect them physically and psychologically that you can't be a parent outside of being a partner you can't be a parent outside of also being a husband or a wife and i thought that was Very interesting. Um, They also talked a lot about the importance of friendship for children. And I thought that was quite interesting. And another very fascinating finding they had related to three-year-olds when they are becoming a sibling. So as we know, when a child is the only child, they have a certain feeling. And then when the new child comes, the feelings of jealousy and other emotions that they experience can be very difficult. It can be a type of relation, a relational trauma that the child goes through. But they found in one study that the quality of friendships among three-year-olds, so this is the quality of a friendship that a three-year-old has, which, you know, we might not think of what does that even mean, but the quality that they had and the friends that they had was the best predictor of adjustment to becoming a sibling for those three-year-olds, which I thought was quite remarkable. So we see that even from a young age, um, social support and connection can serve as a buffer to the difficulties that we face in life. And I thought that was really interesting. So the book um, also emphasized how parents should be focused on the development of their child's emotional intelligence, something that I always talk about that... Don't get too caught up in making them the best student or making them um, excel in certain ways or think you have to make them the smartest kid. Really focus on their emotional development and you even have more control or more of an effect on that. And that's how uh, the parents should see their role and to become what they call emotional coaches or emotion coaching in the way they deal with their children's emotion, which again has to do more with empathy and showing their children whatever they feel it's okay. You can say yes to whatever feeling or wish they have, but you can say no to their behavior. So you don't allow them to do anything at any time, but you can always empathize with them and let them know that they are allowed to feel whatever it is that they're feeling. So this book, in a way, was directed more towards therapists, but I think um, it has a lot of information about relationships and, and families that I think anyone could benefit from, so if you're interested in this topic definitely check the book out the science of couples and family therapy by john and julie gottman and the book of the week for this coming week is astrophysics for people in a hurry by neil degrasse tyson all right we've reached our first commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Back studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Hello? Yes, hi, you're on the air.
0: Yes, hi. Um thank you very much for your program and thanks a lot for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for calling.
0: Um my question is about my undergrad major and ultimately my job. Okay. Um I'll just give a quick background about myself. I um completed my high school in the united arab emirates and um i did pretty well academically i got the highest marks in the uae in three subjects and i graduated as valedictorian and um now i'm studying at uc berkeley um and completed my first year of undergrad and um i'm intending to double major in psychology and film and film is more like a hobby, more like a side because um, I've started making um, films. I've made around five or six short films and that's and that began when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And they've won some awards or they've been nominated at different festivals, but that's more my hobby. Um, and I'm also more leaning towards um, neuropsychology, whereas just general psychology mm-hmm. because um, from what I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, that um, as a foreign therapist, I would be facing some issues when it comes to employment as a general therapist.
1: Um, you mean f- uh, for what also, reason?
0: Um, sorry, I couldn't hear So
1: for what reason would you say you'd be at a disadvantage?
0: Uh, well, because I would be a foreign working in either the U.S. or some European country, and I would have to work in the iranian community in order to sort of increase my chances of employment um and so
1: i'm still i'm not sure if i'm is it because of your english because your english seems fine i don't know
0: um not necessarily because of language issues but just because i would be a foreigner so an american would less likely come to me
1: yes and no i mean i wouldn't say that's the reason why you can't be a therapist um i have colleagues who uh work here and some of them see a lot of Iranian clients but some don't and it, it works out okay it could be a potential disadvantage but not necessarily language wise you seem more than okay so I don't think that's an issue so I wouldn't say you could still go into neuropsychology that, that's actually a wonderful field but I wouldn't say you wouldn't be able to be successful as a therapist in my opinion oh okay
0: um, so about neuropsychology mm-hmm. actually I'm I mean I can't decide between neuroscience and neuropsychology. And my reservation with neuroscience is that it's a little too sciency so to say and it's um, it wouldn't it wouldn't allow me um, to sort of invest some time in film which is my hobby and I would have to invest so much time in the pure science and the your knowledge of neuroscience is that correct i mean that's why i'm going into neuropsychology which from what i know is sort of something between neuroscience and general psychology um would that
1: well i mean you know it's hard to say that any one of them is going to mean you wouldn't be able to do film or you would be able to do film uh, and i wouldn't pick it based on that because i think if you have what you're calling a hobby, although it seems like one that might take sizable amount of time if you're making short films or making films, um, I wouldn't pick your career based on your hobby, you know, or having time for that. I would pick your career based on what you think is the best match for your interests and your strengths and what you think would be rewarding, fulfilling, and meaningful work for you, not because... Um, It might seem less competitive or less time-consuming, and so you would have time for your hobby.
0: Okay, um, I see. Um, So about the um, sort of salary prospects of neuroscience versus neuropsychology, which one is um, more promising?
1: Well, it depends on what you're going to do. Neuroscience, you're probably going to do research, but... I think neuroscience is a very exciting field right now. And there's so much overlap when you say neuroscience and neuropsychology. They're, in some ways, you might even have some of the same jobs. So it depends on what you w- want to do with either one of them. But I think the world of neuroscience, we're really understanding the brain more and more. And there's better technologies to understand the brain and to study it, so I, I think it's really quite an incredible field. Either way, but neuroscience is really interesting um, and definitely a field of the future, in in my opinion. So, if you like it, I know you said the reason why I laughed. You said neuroscience seems to be very sciencey because it has the name science in it. But um, if you find it interesting, I think it can be a great field to get into. But your focus is going to be more on research. So you have to be ready for that. Whereas a neuropsychologist, you maybe can work in a practice or you might be able to practice in a different way than you likely would as a neuroscientist. Um, with neuro, as a neuroscientist, you might do research with people. So in that way, interacting with people. So that would be something for you to consider. How would you want your job to look like? More doing research where you're not exactly interacting with people regularly. It's more about the research. Or would you want to work as a practicing neuropsychologist and maybe be seeing clients or patients every day. All
0: right. So you mean that neuropsychology sort of offers both the research opportunity and the practicing
1: opportunity? Well, possibly, I think it depends. Um, I, I Yeah, more or less, but I don't, you know, the fields, I don't know so much about the details of the career. So I'm definitely not a career counselor by any means. Uh, more I can give you, some feedback on what might be most interesting for you or to make you think about those questions, what you think would be more fulfilling and salary. I don't know, and I wouldn't pick either one of them based on just salary alone or make that distinction. I don't know which one. I think whatever you enjoy doing, and that's actually something I'll be talking about in my success seminar next week, that's going to be a bigger indicator of what you're going to do. If you're better at it and good at it and love it, you'll make it more uh, profitable for yourself than just choosing the career. So I would think more about what you find interesting and what you're more passionate about, and then go down that route rather than focusing on these things. And based on how you've done academically and the way you're talking about and thinking about things, I'm sure you'll work hard and be successful either way. So just pick the one that you feel better about, I would say, rather than focusing on these types of outside things as much
0: uh-huh um i also have a second issue related to this um actually my parents are not really happy with the idea of psychology as a whole be it neuroscience or neuropsychology or just mm-hmm. psychology and they want me to go into nutrition science um because they believe that as a nutrition scientist or as a dietitian i wouldn't have to deal with my patients uh problems um mm-hmm day-to-day, whereas as a psychologist, obviously, the main focus is on
1: their problems. Sure. Um, Well, so it seems like your parents are afraid you won't be able to handle it or the stresses of being in the psychology field. Yeah,
0: exactly. They would think that um, being a psychologist sort of affects my own personal life. Um, Well, it it can.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, definitely being a psychologist or being in that field, or let's say someone's a medical field or a social worker, those types of fields where you're dealing with Maybe let's say stressful or crisis situations. Although, as a therapist, you're not necessarily dealing with all crisis situations, but yes, you're dealing with emotional issues. They absolutely can have an effect on you. And when you're in graduate school, they're going to talk a lot about self care and making sure you're okay and preventing burnout and those types of issues, with, which are really important. But it's something you can manage. And if you are really passionate about it and enjoy the work, then one, it'll be worth it. And two, you'll at least be a little bit less likely to go towards those areas. So if you are interested in these topics, if you think you don't mind that, it sounds to me a little bit like your parents are being protective of you and they're saying, well, we don't want you to take on all this stuff because we're not sure you can handle it. It's up to you, I would say, to decide that and think about that. Yes, dealing with patients or clients will have stresses involved with it, but if you are interested in that work, then go for it. And, if, and neuroscience, maybe you'll study diseases and disorders, but it's, it's a very different way. So you're a little bit removed from the suffering, if you want to call it that. It's not exactly the same thing as sitting across the couch or in a, in a room with someone and talking about their feelings. So that's also different. It's a little bit, like you said, more sciencey. So it's less in the dealing with the emotions and face to face. But personally, I wouldn't say you should go into nutrition because you should avoid dealing with people's feelings if you like it that's what's most important it's definitely a decision that you should be making
0: right okay because i feel that nutrition science i would honestly get bored because i mean it doesn't offer the same opportunities for learning and discovery that um psychology does yeah
1: so that's and how you just described it seems to me like you you know what you you want to do and you don't want to do the nutrition sciences what about psychology interests you or excites you or about neuroscience when you say you see more opportunity for learning. What about it excites you?
0: Especially with um, the neuro part of it, Mm -hmm. because it deals with the brain, and there's so much to learn, even for the scientists themselves, and especially for me, because I'm really a novice in this field. Um, The very fact that you get to learn about humans and ultimately yourself is really interesting, but with nutrition science, I mean, in the beginning, yes, there's a learning curve where I'm learning, but It sort of gets saturated, and then there's nothing more to learn, and it's going to be the same thing every
1: day. Well, yes and no. I mean, I would say almost in most fields you're going to have so much to learn, you're never going to learn all of it, so you could always keep learning. That's why, to me, it's more important to go into a field where you find it interesting. You want to keep learning. You you could study history, and even though it's about the past, you could always keep learning because there's enough history to study for the rest of your life. So it's less to me about is there enough knowledge in the field, Um, and more about what are you interested in. And yes, maybe in neuroscience there will keep being new science because it is definitely a cutting-edge field. So in that way I see what you're saying. But even in nutrition they're going to keep studying different things. Um, That's why for me it's more about what do you feel passionate about. And if you don't feel interested in something like nutrition science and you do find neuroscience or neuropsychology fascinating, if that's where your interests lie, I'd say go down that route and you can – Think about it, of course, what your parents are saying about taking on possibly the emotions and the stresses that you might deal with in your work. But if you feel like it's worth it and there's other people that do it and they can be fine and live their lives okay, which is the case, then I would say choose the route that you want to do and make sure definitely that whatever you decide, it's your decision at the end that you're making it.
0: Thank you very much for your advice. Um, I have one last question. Can I ask that?
1: Yeah, if it's a quick one, we could do it before the break. What's that question?
0: Uh, It's actually a quick one. Um, Well, since I'm studying as an international student here, um, there is no funding opportunity, so Mm -hmm. I want to know if, um, you know about UC Berkeley funding or any scholarship? No, I
1: mean, uh, the, yeah, specific funding and things I don't know. I know there's I would go to, you know, the counseling offices and they have some, maybe they have an international students office. I don't even know. But I would go find out the resources the school has. And oftentimes they'll even have specific scholarships or funding for international students or different types and you have to look into them and then you'll find out there's a specific scholarship that might fit you and you can apply for that and possibly get it but as far as those things go I don't know about what is available and isn't out go talk to your the counselors at the school and see what they can help you with
0: okay thank you very much. thanks for calling good
1: luck wish you the best take care
0: thank
1: you bye-bye bye-bye all right going into our last commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Welcome back. Last week, like many of you, I'm sure, uh, I was very saddened and shocked by the news of the suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And um, people were definitely shocked by both of them and saddened as I was uh, for many reasons, one of which is that both of them had achieved so much in their respective careers. And people often think that if you're successful, if you achieve a certain level of fame and notoriety, you're going to be happy. Or if we put it the other way, many people think I'm not happy, but if I had these things, if I was rich and famous and successful, I would be happy. I would have everything I want or everything I need. And issues like suicide are very complex and complicated and have many, many different factors involved from mental health issues like depression to substance abuse, um, even access to lethal means like uh, firearms plays a role. There's a lot of different factors to look at, and I definitely won't address all of them in this segment. Um, Another Important aspect of it that I do want to address with a whole show devoted to it is talking to children about suicide, both uh, the news that comes out about these deaths and but also about mental health and suicide within the family itself. And so soon I'll be joined in the next couple of weeks by Dr. Jennifer Galvin to talk about that issue, talking to kids about suicide. Um, But coming back to people's shock. About learning of these two suicides, uh, I think it reflects several things. First of all, one thing to always remember is that you never know what someone is going through. You never know the battles or the pain that they have. Um, They might look very happy or they might look okay. You can't really tell what someone is going through. You don't know the battles and demons that they might be fighting in their own life, which is on one hand a reminder to be kinder and more understanding of one another and compassionate for everyone. Everyone is fighting a battle that you don't know about that might be much more than you realize, And also to remember that even if someone looks okay or looks happy, they might be going through much more within themselves that you might not be aware of. Another example of this was the tragic suicide a few years ago of Robin Williams, where people were so shocked that someone who was so good at making other people laugh and making other people happy that he might have been so unhappy himself to the point where he um, ended his own life. And so it's a reminder that we have to check in with each other. We have to ask and really ask genuinely, of course, We ask each other, how are you doing? But really, we don't mean much when we say that other than a pleasant greeting, but really with the people that you're close to and close with, to really ask them how they're doing on a deeper level and to create that type of communication where it's okay to talk about how you feel, even if it's not good, even if it's bad. I was talking about the carrying capacity of negative emotion that the Gottmans talked about in their book, and this is in a way similar issue of being able to tolerate and talk about these negative feelings when someone is down that they can feel okay talking about it that we create a culture in our marriages and our families that it's okay to talk about how you're doing when it's not good not just when it's good or to pretend like you're doing okay and that you're happy when you're actually not And that only happens when we show that it's okay to talk about these things. And that also we take the risk ourselves to actually share when we're not doing well. As a parent, you definitely don't want to overwhelm your children with your negative emotions and feelings. So you don't want to, uh, let's say, you know, fall apart in front of them emotionally often. But you can show them that you get sad sometimes too and that this is okay, that sadness is an emotion they're going to experience and that it's okay to feel sad and it's okay to talk about it that you're not bad for feeling sad you're not a burden to mom and dad if you're sad that's one of the emotions and we can understand that you're going through it so we want to validate those emotions and also communicate and express those feelings so that our children realize that it's okay to talk about these things and that it's not something that they should be ashamed of or that has to be avoided and of course when we hear about these suicides we can be i don't want to say certain but we know there's a good chance that depression played a part and the brain when it is depressed and our judgment and the way we see the world unfortunately can become very twisted and very negative and can create some downward spirals that can be so hard to overcome and that's what we likely seeing in these cases as in most cases of suicide and again this makes me want to talk about the ways that people talk about suicide and even i want to educate myself more because there's lots of ways that we tend to talk about suicide that are not very sensitive to what the people and the families are going through. And that's something to keep in mind. But one thing that breaks my heart is you often will see after a suicide, people getting mad at the person who took their own life, um, saying things like, how could they do that? How could they leave their family? Um, how could they not be happy when they had everything calling them negative things, even sometimes talking to their, their families. I remember Robin Williams daughter got some verbal attacks from people on social media, which is horrible after someone goes through something like that to then um, have them have to go through that on top of it. Uh, But this idea that someone is being selfish or someone, how could they do that? Uh, It is heartbreaking. It's tragic. But we have to try to understand that when people are are in that state, it's almost like their brain isn't quite working right and they feel that they're actually a burden on the people around them. So, even if they have a child, even if they have a partner, even if they have people that might care about them, rely on them, they think that they're actually maybe a burden on them or that things are so dark they just can't handle it and they're just making things worse. Something is going on where they get to this hopeless place where they feel that things can't get any better, that they are somehow more hurtful being alive than being dead, and they make Make that choice. Of course, everyone is going through a different type of battle and struggle, but this idea that they're being selfish is something that we might want to think twice about saying or talking about and telling people that uh, somehow they they're being selfish and what they did. But it's also a reminder of how important it is to have love for ourselves, because when we get to that point, it means usually we don't see ourselves as being very worthwhile that we don't feel good about who we are, value who we are. And this is why when we talk about things like being successful and we think that that's the only thing that matters, we see that achieving fame and notoriety, they're not bad things. And so I don't actually, uh, I'm not trying to say Kate Spader, Anthony Bourdain did a bad thing by achieving those things. But we know that those things don't lead to long-term happiness and feelings of fulfillment. That they can feel good for a while, but it's going to go away and we go back to some baseline. And more important than what we're going to experience on the outside, as far as achievement and fame and wealth, is how we feel on the inside about ourselves. If we love ourselves, if I feel I'm worthy of love and respect, then no matter what happens on the outside, I still feel that I'm worthy of love and respect, that I'm lovable, that I'm okay as I am that my outside success does not determine my self-worth. As I like to say, you want to make sure your net worth is not the same as your self-worth, or I should probably say it the other way around, that your self-worth is not based on your net worth. It doesn't matter how much you have, you're still valuable because of who you are and just being a human being. So we don't need to get anything on the outside to feel that self-love. But most of us don't develop enough of that growing up based on the experiences we have, the parents that we have in those early years, we start to internalize lots of things about ourselves and we tend not to have that feeling of love towards ourselves, unfortunately. And this to me is often what's leading to what we see in these situations of suicide where someone unfortunately doesn't have that value for themselves, And all the outside things in the world can go positively, but that's not going to be enough to change what's going on on the inside. And so again, this is the importance that parents play. And sometimes it could seem like we emphasize so much those early years or people even joke about how cliché it is to go to therapy and for someone to ask you about your mom or your dad or to blame everything on your parents. But we know this plays a huge impact in who we are and who we feel we are at our core, and how much we value ourselves. So as parents, we want to make sure we give our kids that message all the time, that you are lovable and okay, however you are being. As I was saying before, you can always say yes to whatever they wish or desire or feel, even if you say no to their behavior, letting them know that they're okay to feel whatever it is they're feeling. If they're angry at you, they might say, I hate you and you don't want to respond to them and say, hate is such a strong word, and how could you hate me? I do everything for you. You're recognizing that they're frustrated and they're angry, and you want to empathize and reflect that back to them and let them know that even though you're angry at me, that's okay. Maybe I won't let you disrespect me, or I won't let you do something like that because I respect myself. But your emotion does not make you bad. You are not bad for feeling something. And we want to make sure we give our kids that message and no matter what, they are doing or being it doesn't mean they are bad at their core we're still going to love them we're going to encourage them to do good things we're going to encourage to build strong um, character in them but as far as what they're feeling we're never going to make them feel bad or not okay for being something so these deaths were very tragic and i was very sad to hear about them i don't want to call it even a silver lining because we don't um you know Things like this shouldn't have to happen for us to have these conversations. But one thing you are seeing is a lot more conversations about mental health, people talking about the stigma attached to mental health and about suicide. And I think that is very important and valuable. So, not that their lives were lost for this reason, but to make sure we don't take their lives in vain, that we continue these conversations. And of course, their deaths were tragic, but there are many, many nameless people or people that whose names we don't know who take their own lives every day. And so suicide is a real issue, and it's affecting real people all the time. And so, of course, it's not just tragic when a celebrity dies in this way. It's tragic when anyone dies in this way. And this is why we have to continue the battles against the stigma of mental illness, the battles against the taboo about mental illness, about going to therapy, about talking about suicide. We have to make these things okay. We have to make it okay and part of our daily and normal conversation to talk about these things. They aren't things to be ashamed about. Mental illness or having mental issues is not something about us and them. It's part of all of us. It's part of being human to have these types of feelings. Just like if you go see a medical doctor, no one has perfect medical health or physical health. None of us has perfect mental health either. We all have something going on and that's okay. It doesn't make us somehow bad or not okay. It just means we're dealing with something and we should deal with it and get help if we need to or deal with it on our own if we can. But it doesn't mean it somehow makes us not okay. But I hope we can continue these conversations about mental health, about seeking out mental health services, going to therapy, seeing a psychiatrist if you need to, and about suicide, because these conversations have to continue. We have to take them out of the area of taboo and stigma and into the area of everyday conversation. So our thoughts and prayers and wishes to their families and everyone affected by their losses, and of course, anyone else who has lost someone to suicide. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio on The Caller. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalaqui. Have a wonderful night.